Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. The Happy Half Hour is a fun food and drink podcast brought to you by the editors of San Diego Magazine and food critic Troy Johnson. Learn about San Diego's food scene with news about restaurant openings and closings and discussions about what's happening in the culinary world. Get to know a local chef, restaurateur, or farmer each week and find your perfect affordable date night with the regular segment, Two People, 50 Bucks. Subscribe to Happy Half Hour wherever you listen to podcasts or visit sdmag.com slash happy. You guys want to do this? Do the pod? Do the podcasting? Codpast. <laughs> Podcast about cod. But specifically the history of the, cod. Well, just the whole they're, world of cod. No, they're past. They're past, yes. Yeah. My, uh, they're past. Xavier, what are you listening to? Cod Past. It's a podcast about <laughs> cod. It's past. <laughs> oh, I get the past now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego Cod Past in partnership <laughs> with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice. I'm joined as always by Andy Keats, assistant editor and editor at large on CODs, and our managing editor, Sarah Libby. Sarah, hello. Hello. So the COD past is only about the past of CODs. Of CODs. It's a podcast idea we're kicking around. COD past. Podcast about CODs past. All right, coming up on the COD past today, District Attorney Summer Steffen came into the studio for an interview. Some of the things you'll hear if you stick around turned out to be news, and we wrote about them, specifically news about the big investigation that Andy has been on for some time about the backlog of rape kits at the San Diego Police Department. So that will be interesting. Stay for that. It is happening. Last week, the San Diego City Council voted to start a new energy agency, an agency that will buy electricity for ratepayers locally. That means that we get to cover a new agency and Rai Rivard is going to come in and talk about what that all means. But first, I'm sorry. I have a problem. I indulged it this week. I could not resist writing about the Chargers. And I'm getting some of that sweet, sweet Charger web traffic. Everyone's like encouraging you, I know. which you're not supposed to do with yeah. people who have a problem. All the people tweeting. Yeah, it's just, it's really feeding yeah, no, like if you are an addict and the version of treatment that you're getting is like, well, every once in a while, just use the drug. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, like maybe that'll help. No, if every not, once not just, a year. It's, you, that, it's not that. It's like, that is great. Yeah. <laughs> Keep yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, so this week, Fred Rogan at NBC LA reported that the Rams are frustrated with Chargers owner Dean Spanos for not raising enough revenue from personal seat licenses to help with the construction of the stadium. That stadium has gotten a lot more expensive. I've heard a lot of the bros locally talking about this little row of billionaires, and they just weren't getting it right, guys. I had to do it. I had to step up. All right, the first thing to know, and this is good for San Diego's own conscience. That's why I'm doing this, for our own sense 
of conscience, uh-huh. our own feeling of well-being. The first thing to know is that the stadium, the Costa Stadium in L.A., has ballooned Mike Costa and Judson Rich- Richards at 1360. Asked Rams COO Kevin DeMoff about this. Kevin, speaking of pricing, I, I think it, will the pr- price tag end up being like over $5 billion? You guys went ahead and put in the solid gold toilets, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> they heated solid gold toilets. <laughs> $5 billion, he went on to say. That they're it's like you know twice as big as other stadiums. It has all this infrastructure for its technology. Two point five mid coast trolley lines. Yeah, like that's which we have been working to build for thirty years. <laughs> they're just dropping it. Two and a half of on them on a palace for football. And Taylor Swift's going to play there. I'm sure. Cool. I'm in. Yeah, that, that would five that's billion it. dollars. We're good. Five Money well spent. Billion dollars. <laughs> All right, so the second thing to know is that the Chargers are only going to pay a dollar in rent every year for 20 years, and they don't have to contribute anything else to the stadium construction beyond the $200 million loan that they took out from the Ram, or from the NFL. Which is like a 0% interest loan, basically. Right, and they, they did that. So if they sell any of these personal seat licenses, which are just, again, the right to buy season tickets— then they have to give 18% or they only get to keep 18% of what they sell and the rest has to go to the Stan Kroenke, the Rams owner. So they're not incentivized at all to work too hard to sell those for that much money. And lo and behold, they didn't. They have not. They they lowered the price of those and that's what they're mad about. So again, I think it's just more proof that we've gotten the Chargers wrong. Everybody disparages them for being renters, but they are legendary renters. <laughs> They're really good at renting. They're very good at doing running. They've gotten this guy, this mega billionaire. He's going to be fine, but they've gotten him to build them this giant stadium that they only pay a dollar a year in. And they're not even a team really right now. They're more like a theory. Like <laughs> they're, they're more like eventually it'll be okay and people will like us. We don't need fans right now. And so they're like can, those, they're like the, the streaming, the, Netflix originals that no one watches yeah. but are part of Netflix. Right. They're like that. Right. And and he has to pay all of this. Like to- the Adam Sandler package on Netflix. <laughs> I watched that. Yeah. <laughs> and all they have to do, so they, their idea is like in 30 years, nobody's going to remember that nobody remembered that they're in San Diego or that they're not in San Diego. Yeah. That they're going to have this vast intergenerational wealth and all they had to do was eat garbage <laughs> for 10 years maybe? Yeah. Shamelessness is quite an asset if you can if you can muster it. It's it's downright admirable. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Too far. <laughs> one I mean one of the things that you get at though is that like instead of us getting taken for a ride for all yeah. these years, yeah. now it's stand cranky, which makes it a lot funnier. Yeah. It's a lot easier to laugh at at very some amusing. other rich guy being the one that has to float these like fundamentally unqualified goobers yeah i don't watch the chargers play football anymore but i like watching this right happen yeah. that's why this i wrote show. about it thank you all right it's instead yeah exactly instead of you know someone is shouldering the cost of an expensive stadium for them that they're not paying any rent at yeah and it's not san diego taxpayers it's like it's a great story
Last week, the San Diego City Council voted to start a new energy agency now. San Diego, along with a few neighboring cities, will form a community choice energy organization to buy electricity for residents. It's also called Community Choice Aggregation. That means we get to cover a new agency, and I promise we will look into some of the claims about their ability to diversify our energy portfolio to more renewables and to save money. And to talk about all this is the beloved Rye Rivard. Rye, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. What happened and what should we watch for? So the city decided to start an agency to buy and sell energy. If that sounds like what sdg e does, it is. Um, sdg e is going to stick around, though, because they also have infrastructure. They have the poles and the lines, and they get most of their money from guaranteed profit on you know building that and maintaining that infrastructure. The city, the city's plan is we want to go out and buy green energy. They didn't think that San Diego gas and electric was going to get rid of gas anytime soon. I see what you did there. Yeah. And, Real uh, subtle. It's it good. seemed like you had stuttered, but in fact, you had very deliberately emphasized a specific word that you wanted to use to make a point about the calculation that had been made by the city of San Diego relative to the energy monopoly. That's good radio. <laughs> what they really want to do is uh, burn, uh, or, or actually not burn, on uh, things to make energy. Uh, they want to use you know, solar power, wind power. And that's to meet the city's goal of having 100% renewable clean energy by 2035. All right. And do we have any indication that they will continue using the words community choice aggregation and aggregation? The One of the top city officials working on this, Cody Hooven, uh, said uh, she's really hoping that they hire some good marketing people to come up with another term. I think everyone in the city, whether they are for or against CCAs as a concept, agree that it would be great to have another name for them. It's going to be something like Sun or something like that. I guarantee it. Sun San Diego or something. All right. What do we look for now? What are your big questions? Because there's a lot, right? Yeah. So it's supposed to be greener. Uh, We did a story last year where some of the existing CCAs in the state had been buying hydroelectric power from the Pacific Northwest. And we found some evidence that what was happening is the people that were selling the hydroelectricity to California, we're simply replacing that power with coal or gas power. Um, So the net uh, uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions was basically nil. Um, That will be one thing. Is this actually going to be meaningful green power? The other thing is, is it going to be cheaper? That was one of the promises. Um, You're already starting to see the percentages that the city thinks it can save customers changing. and um, the other major issue uh, will be, you know, not only, you know, where, you know, what kind of power this is, if it's uh, not for, you know, if it's green or not, but where these projects get built. Um, SDG&E's uh, uh, approach was to build uh, projects where land was cheap. That's in rural areas, um, you know, in the Imperial Valley. Um, one uh, major project was in um, Mexico that SDG&E uh, is getting power from. And um, the labor unions, which are a growing uh, political force in this city, are not keen on um, not being able to have local workers. Um, So local workers and local projects are going to be a big issue. But, of course, land is expensive here and so is, in some cases, labor. This is all tied into what you just said. But 
that it's new power is itself something to look for, as opposed to simply buying already existing energy off of the out of the energy market. That that you would actually build new projects and that would create the power is uh, where this potentially becomes a, a difference-making entity. Yeah, I mean, right now, some of the existing CCAs, particularly the smaller ones like Solana Beach, sort of get a menu from consultants, and they'll buy you know, some hydroelectricity that's available on the market in California, some wind energy that, that might be available on the market in Idaho. You know, this is just an example. Um, and so they're paying to get green energy, but they're not contributing to new projects that create new green energy that drive... Um, existing coal-fired power plants or gas-fired power plants out of business. Now, there's an argument that if you're buying green energy, you're creating a market for that. But the real test is, can you demonstrate that you have put what those in the electric industry call steel in the ground? What was the argument and what is the the idea that they're going to be able to save money? Like, what what is being what what where is money being spent right now that they don't have to spend it on this and they can pass those savings on to ratepayers so part of the theory is that they can do things less expensively than a private company um i think sdg largely disputes that they say we don't really make money off of buying and selling power that's a pass-through cost um there are also uh changes in the um, market for uh, or the price of solar energy right now. It's going down significantly. Of course, that's something a private company could take advantage of just as well as the city. Um, but the other theory that I think is, is fairly compelling that environmental activists have made um, is that SDG&E wanted to control the infrastructure because that's where they get their money. So they weren't necessarily interested in, say, residential rooftop solar, things that get installed um that they can't make money from. And the city might not necessarily care as long as there's enough power for its residents, you know, who gets all the money from that, or at least they may care less. Yeah, so taking another step, there might be more decentralization of the grid if there's not an entity that wants to protect the sort of grid as it is. Is that right. a fair way to put it? Yes. Okay. And to move back to something you had just said, there's also a bit of an arbitrage that's an opportunity for a new company that wouldn't be one that SUGNA had, which is, as you say, the price of renewable energy is going down, but some of that renewable energy that's in SDG&E's portfolio is old. It was a long-term contract struck eight years ago, uh, meaning it was more expensive, and they're going to continue to pay that more expensive price until the end of that contract, whereas this new entity will only be buying new power. They won't be shouldered will buy the, the out-of-date but expensive old renewable energy. That's exactly right. Of course, you could point out that that's only a short-term thing because yes. eventually SDG would, if they continued to buy and sell power, which they, they're trying to get out of that market entirely, they could eventually take as much advantage of that opportunity as anyone else. So I think it's really the the difference in incentive may be the, the game-changing thing here. Um, if the city, I mean, the city still has to bring in revenue to fund this agency, but they have uh, potentially less incentive to try and make um, money from the infrastructure. Mm. And we have to pay a fee, right, that's supposed to help sdg with those costs of those old long-term projects, right? And so it's not like a pure switch where we're free of that, right? Yeah, it's called an exit fee. And that's uh, there was a decision last year, but then there's still a... If you ever want to sign up for a California Public Utilities listserv to get all of the the regulatory filings, you will be overwhelmed. Slow down, people. Don't, Do don't I? all click on it at once. <laughs> we yeah. will put the link in the show notes, <laughs> but we're not going to read it right now. 
Um, so there's still a proceeding going on dealing with some of those issues. But yeah, essentially, there's a we're paying off the costs of power, or we will be paying off the costs of power that SDG&E bought, assuming we would still be buying power from them. But in the future, we won't be. Rye, we told people we are going to be following some of these questions, but you will not, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us what you're doing. So I am taking a job in New York at the Adirondack Explorer. Um, I'll be covering water quality issues in upstate New York. I am sad to leave Voice of San Diego. Um, I uh, uh, it's a really it's a really great opportunity, um, and I'm also uh, uh, following a, a longtime girlfriend, and um, that's uh, you know journalism is a tough world right now, and and. Getting two jobs in the same city can be challenging, and um, we have a we have a great um, set of opportunities that, um, if, uh, unfortunately, uh, are going to cause me to leave you all, which mm. I I love dearly. Well, this place. Well, we adore you, right, Sarah? Yes. More than I'm words still can tell. In denial and just blocking it out completely, yeah. as you can see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sarah's not admitting it yet, but um, <laughs> uh, I I will say like. Uh, you did great. And uh, people, I think all of our listeners have loved your cameos here and all the explanation you've done. And uh, 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 we'll be following your career closely. And we're very proud of what you did here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening and, you know, donate. Fare you well, fare you well. I love you more than words can tell. Listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul. Okay, up next we have our interview with Summer Steph and Sarah and I sat down with her earlier this week and noticed right away she had some very important things to say. And to that point, we wanted to talk with Andy here about some updates since then, but also some context context you need to understand going into this interview to enhance your experience of it. So she right away starts, we start talking about the rape kits issue, and she begins by discussing some things that she disagreed with, in particular about categorization. What was she talking about? And when they listen to it, what should they listen for? All right, so we have all these untested rape kits. The city of San Diego declined an offer from Summer Stefan to join a uh, group of other law enforcement from the county, all 11 police departments and the sheriff's department, who were going to send all their rape kits to third-party private labs to be tested so that the untested kit requirements wouldn't uh, infringe on their capacity to test what the, the normal workflow that they had from new things that were coming in. SDPD declined to do that, and instead they chose a very specific policy of their own. What that was, they created this working group. Uh, it included a, a representative from the DA's office, someone from the crime lab, somebody from sex crimes in the STPD, and a victim's advocate. And they were going to decide which rape kits would get testing and in what order. The way they would do that, every time STPD elected not to test a kit, they put it in one of 18 different buckets. Each bucket was essentially a different reason not to test the kit, such as the district attorney declined to prosecute. And the way that this working group was going, was deciding which ones to test, was going category by category and then assessing each kit from that category for testing. 
So, so uh, District Attorney Stefan in this interview says that she completely disagrees from this whole process. When she talks about the, the category system that STPD is a part of, that she says she reluctantly decided to put one of her staff members on that group, that's what she's referring to. The idea of categorizing these kits into the different reasons that they weren't tested and then going through them systematically to decide which ones to test. So after she said this and after she expressed dismay about these decisions about uh, how they were kind of cutting corners to get some of this backlog processed, uh, we did a story about that. And then the right after that, the police chief announced something rather significant that they're going to actually do that, right? Yeah, and you can hear Summer, she sort of alludes to this maybe happening in the interview. But very shortly after our story published, uh, STPD put out a statement saying, that they were going to stop their process of going through these kits and instead join the rest of the law enforcement groups in the county, send all 1,700 untested kits in their possession away to third parties to get tested. Fun side note, we were not included on that media announcement. <laughs> we were not. Shout out to SDPD. All right. Well, hopefully we can rectify that. We uh, At least let us know when there's something about our stories. All right. Here is our interview with District Attorney Summer Stephan. Great Boy San Diego podcast studio by Summer Stefan once again. Now she's DA permanently, at least elected DA. Welcome. Permanently. Well, <laughs> not interim or whatever. Good morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, congrats. Lifetime appointment. Good job. Uh, how are you? Thanks for coming in. I'm I'm good. It's it's a it's a real honor to serve, and I'm glad to be here to talk about the great team and everything. One of the things that was on the top of our mind is a story we did this week about rape kits. You tweeted, um, I think it was a couple weeks ago, uh, the DA announced that 1,692 untested sexual assault evidence kits from 12 police agencies across the county have been sent to an independent lab for testing over the past 17 months. Our Andrew Keats did a story, I think about that same day, that said that there were dozens of kits at STPD that um, weren't weren't put through the same rigor as as your office and another uh, couple of uh, groups that had formed this sort of advisory committee for the the agency about. Were you aware that STPD had decided to implement a less rigorous testing procedure um, for those dozens of cases? No, we we weren't aware. And uh you know the the whole process. I have great respect for the lab technicians. They do great work at the STPD lab. It's one of the finest labs. But where it comes to sexual assault testing, um, you know, I've completely disagreed from day one because I believe that they shouldn't be put in categories. Categories have subjective elements to them. That's the whole point of the Department of Justice guidelines changing to allow testing of all rape kits so that we don't have a subjective element. What case is credible? What case is worthy? Who should get testing? So about two years ago, August of 2017, I brought both labs, the sheriff and STPD, and told them, um, you know, asked them, do you have capacity to test the historic rape kits? And they don't. 
the labs do not have capacity to go back in time and test the backlogs because we believed it was in the thousands. Mm -hmm. And so I found the money and spearheaded a project where they can keep moving forward, testing all rape kits, and we can move back with a certified lab and make sure all rape kits are tested. All 11 police departments and sheriff accepted and signed the MOUs. They thought this was a great solution. STPD told us they want to do it internally. We asked questions. How are you going to accomplish that? You're already stressed, busting at the seams, trying to keep up with cases. They assured us they can. And so we moved ahead, and now we reported a milestone. We're only 100 rape kits away from finishing the backlog for every agency except STPD. And so with STPD, they decided to invite us. It was their invitation to a working group to decide on the categories. We discussed it. We decided even though we don't like this category system, we are better at being at the table and trying to be part of the solution, hoping that we would make almost every case fit within this category. That was our role. So whatever statements, misstatements were made about us approving a technical process of what a scientist would come up with on how to test, we are not a part of that. We were part of a working group to determine and to help encourage them to expand these categories. Chief Nislight was not a part of the original MOUs. And he and I have talked and I've made the offer to him that if they want to now join the MOUs of the entire county to regionalize and finish this effort for victims, um, that I would work very hard on getting grants or getting the money so we can accomplish this. And I, I know he really, really cares about this issue and that he is, um, I trust we're going to get to a solution together. So you mentioned um, grants and the fact that they're at capacity, and that's something that across the country we've heard is, you know, a challenge when it comes to clearing the rape kit backlog. But SDPD has always been a little different in that they seem to argue philosophically that they don't agree mm -hmm. with testing all kits and that it's not necessarily a matter of resources, but they just don't think it's valuable. What's your take on that? Well, that argument went out the window in August of 2017 because we are a region that follows best practices. In fact, we make best practices. But now that there is a clear publication in August 2017 by the National Institute of Justice as part of the Department of Justice that said best practices are to test all rape kits, Whatever arguments that might have been valid at some point, this is part of evolving is people can have, you know, held beliefs that that make sense. But we have to go with what is current science and current science is that the old way of doing it, which is you test when there is an unknown perpetrator when you don't know the identity, that that has gone out the window because we know that even known perpetrators, if we know their identity, they strike again. I had a case just like that. 
And and this is what made me so passionate is to be able to get justice for victims because if you put them in the CODIS bank, they will hit against other predators. We saw this in our efficient pickup case. Right. These guys were operating and were starting to do this around the country. And the fact is that they had one of them had done it years earlier. And and so we, we know that even if the case looks like um, it's not going to go anywhere. There isn't enough evidence that it can help support other cases and it can help trigger that what we have is a predatory scheme. So just to be ultra clear, you're, you are making it clear from your perspective that the decision to you know employ a less rigorous testing regimen is not defensible. You know, I... I, I don't think that, that that's the right thing to do. I was glad to hear that STPD acknowledged and I saw the reporting that they pulled back from that. Mm -hmm. But again, the DA's office in our role, we advocate for policy and our what we're advocating for is all of these have to be tested. We assume that the testing will be done by proper standards. We don't get into the technical because that's not our area. We trust that forensic experts will make those decisions correctly. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that now this will open the door. And, and I mean, I appreciate the reporting because I, I think that it's important that we stop and that we re-examine. And I mean, you know, mistakes happen, but the, the key is to, to not get stuck on ego, to correct and to move forward so we can serve this community. Mm. Let me ask you about something else. Recently, the UT wrote about and editorialized about this issue, the I'll just read their point. They said that Summer Stephens stunningly gave the go-ahead to allow her staff to demand as a condition of plea deals that those who are accepting them waive, quote, all future potential benefits of any legislative actions or judicial decisions or other changes in the law that may occur uh, after the date of the plea. In other words, we're doing a lot of things over, the, over time to change law that might make some of the sentences that you are getting right now you know, be changed or reformed or, or um, convictions overturned in some cases. So are, what, what happened with that? And, you know, why, did, why is that something you wanted to do for, uh, for some of these prosecutions? So what I'm always looking at is safe reform, criminal justice reform. And I completely embrace that. In fact, we are leading in the state on criminal justice reform. We formed a sentence review. So we already had a conviction review where we review convictions where there may be claims of innocence. We opened the door. We posted the application in the prisons because we want to make sure that we are working with integrity and ethics. But now based on a new law that allows DAs to re-sentence so that you can have also sentence justice, that sentences are also ethical and fair. Um, we use that law. We were the first in the state in the case of Mr. Kent Williams that brought him back and reduced his sentence from 40 years to life to 16 years. And he was released back to his family. We did this after consulting with the victims. And we were touted and, and Assemblymember Ting came out because we were the first to do this. I didn't realize we're the first. We, were, we never aimed to be the first. We aim to do the right thing every day. 
So what happened is that I'm always looking at the balance of victims' rights versus offenders' rights. In these three cases, and let me tell you, there were only three cases out of 40,000 cases we handle. We were offered a plea bargain, and the plea bargain was less than what the person would have faced. One case was a 19-year-old who died. He was shot dead by a gang member in the arms of his father. He had a little baby. I got to eyeball the victims across the table and see this mother without a father. Another case was a domestic violence strangulation. And the third case was a DUI driver, three times the legal limit, going across and killing. In all three cases, we were offered a plea bargain. And the victims' families asked, is this really the sentence? You're telling me the person is pleading to 12 years, or in one case, it was 50 years. Is that really the sentence or could it change? And we had to tell them the truth that it could change, even though it was a plea bargain. The family wanted that assurance and the law at the time provided that under a case law that you could take these waivers in a plea bargain. Even though the law provided that, I didn't like it as a practice. I thought it should be extremely limited, and we did limit it to those three cases. This is why when the law was passing, it's on the governor's desk, I didn't oppose it because it it is so rare that I would use it that it didn't affect uh, what I believed was justice. You're talking about the law that prohibits those sorts of deals. It took away what the case law said. The legislature has the right to pass law that takes away what the law by the state law says. So it it didn't affect a practice. It was so rare that I didn't oppose it. Um, you know, what is interesting in the case where the plea bargain didn't go through, um, the defendant, the killer of this young man, was just convicted by a jury, and his sentence by law will be life without parole. What we were looking at was less than what he would have gotten. So we were were doing it for the right reasons, to give victims some assurances. But I actually can see the bigger policy that it can be misused. It can become like a regular practice. That was never my intention, but this is why I see some good in this law. Speaking of criminal justice reforms, I wanted to talk about a law that the governor signed earlier this year, written by Shirley Weber from San Diego, that changes the standards that guide police use of force. Under the current standards, no officers have been prosecuted in San Diego by your office in the last decade or so. What's your take on the new law? You know, I, I didn't take a position uh, on the new law because I wanted to be in the objective position of properly evaluating based on the law. We follow the law. I think that we are studying this law very carefully because we obviously have to use it. We're, we're trying to do comparisons side to side. Some things that are definitely a good thing about the law is that it sounds like they worked it out where it is they kept a lot of the good parts and some of the parts that required much hindsight kind of thinking uh, were removed from the law. So it really is going to come down to this, the word 
necessity versus uh, reasonable mm-hmm. um, and and kind of analyzing what is necessary in terms of the use of force. What's really, really compelling is that in the 25-year study that I just published of officer-involved shootings, most of the shootings happen in less than five minutes. So they happen in in a very limited amount of time. And focusing on that period of time and in only, I think, about 25% was less lethal force used. So combining the speed by which officers have to react and the fact that it the, the limited time doesn't allow for less lethal force to be considered and used, you know, I, I'm using this law as an opportunity to, to lower incidents. I mean, I think any time a life can be saved, it's a win for everybody. And so I kind of using this law to push through another regional effort like the rape kit effort that I moved through to have enhanced training in de-escalation and looking for other alternatives for police. I was able to put aside about a million and a half of my asset forfeiture money that's normally used to buy new guns and cars and everything, but I wanted to focus on this training element. So we partnered with PERT and we looked at the 25-year study and all the holes where maybe another approach, maybe more training, maybe understanding that what the officer is seeing as um, not obeying orders, maybe a lack of understanding of from the individual because of their mental health state or their drug psychosis. So it's not that they're not obeying commands, it's that they have the capacity the men, to not obey commands. And we focused on this five minutes and created kind of a state of the art. It got post-certified already. And POST is looking at it now as potentially a model for the monies that are coming in to help come hand in hand with this new law to try to lower uh, the incidence of shooting. What's POST? Sorry. POST is is the police officer standards. They're who certifies police training. And that training already began, and it uses a simulator Instead of simulating shoot-no-shoot scenarios, it simulates interaction with persons that have mental health issues or have a crisis from drugs. So you evaluated a group of officer-involved shootings, you said, the last 10 years or 25 25 years? 25 years. And so even though most of those cases or maybe none of them were ever prosecuted for a crime, you did find deficiencies in how the officers reacted? You know, I wouldn't, um, that that wouldn't be fair for me to say I found deficiencies. I, I found areas where we can, we can improve. Um, so, you know, through, and so I'm using the opportunity of the new law with the companion law that requires the training and I brought to the police chiefs and sheriffs, and and they were they were excited about this project. Is why don't we kind of look at this data and lead? Because we all want less people to die or be injured. This is not 
good when that happens. And when I have to, because I now, you know, have our team treat the uh, families of people who die um, in a, you know, even in a more humane way. We make sure they see the video first before it's published to the media. We explain to them our findings. We know they're not going to agree, but we think that's the the compassionate right thing to do. Um, you know, I wish we could have less of those meetings. And when you look at my 25-year study, you'll see that 79% of the individuals not only were shot in the first five minutes and not only and actually 30% at zero minutes, meaning on arrival, you'll see that there's such a gap of communication between what the officers knew and, and what dispatcher told them there is not a good relaying of information that the officer needs to de-escalate the situation, to stop and think, do I need to come in this moment or can I just talk using a bullhorn and try to calm the situation down? So alongside of that, we worked with NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and created a card that is from the perspective of families and people who call for help that have someone in crisis so that they can relay all the correct information to dispatch so that when the officer arrives at the scene, they're not making decisions like I see on body worn. Officer arrives, mom has called because a schizophrenic son. Officer is asking mom right in front of the son, is he dangerous? Well, that is sending the son into a state of additional crisis. It's not the officer's fault. It's that he has to ask these questions, but these are the questions and answers that should have been asked before officer was at the scene. So it is looking at the whole system is how can dispatch assist? How can we train families to relay more accurate information that can save the officer's life and the individual's life. One thing we saw in our study is that injury to officers is also going up. So, so this this crisis in terms of safety affects officers' health and it affects the individual's health. I wanted to ask you about something else that we've been following. We've been doing a lot of investigative work about uh, teachers and educators and you brought up schools uh, and, and some of these situations where they've been s- investigations into some of the misconduct that some students allege has been have been substantiated. And, and yet in so few cases, we've seen actual prosecutions. In some cases, the, the educator's been allowed to move to other districts, or there's so many times where there's these quiet settlements. Is there some way that law enforcement could get more involved in these processes? Are, there, are they respecting their mandated reporter requirements the way that they should? Uh, have you learned anything from, from that series that, that, um, that you'll be acting on? Yeah, I followed that series very carefully. I, I think it is it is fantastic. It's really thorough. And the protection of kids, we have to get that right. We we can't have these loopholes. I mean, if, if just last week we convicted a teacher, you know, and sent him to prison. I mean, we regularly prosecute bad actors who are in a position of trust, teachers, coaches, you know, 
theater people, all of that. So, so that is a priority for us. But I tell you, there are gaps and loopholes in the mandated reporting law. And they, you know, the way the law is written is one issue because it leaves too much to discretion. So uh, last year I sent, I used also my asset forfeiture money to send every single school and every single mandated reporter in our schools a card that they can put on their desk that tells them exactly what to do and how minimal their reporting duties are. You're not being asked to investigate yourself, to determine beyond a reasonable doubt if it's true. You just have to have a suspicion based in reason because you saw something or because you were told something and you must report it and let the authorities deal with it. So I started there, that was just a start. And now we started our own internal task force that's like like a, a way because the gap that I see is people report, but then they don't know what happened to that report. They don't know if anyone followed up on it. And in some of your reporting, it showed that actually some of the reporting went into some recycle bin and it never got to the right place. So I established this email and way for people to contact us and say, hey, I don't know if anything happened. I'm not getting a response so that so that the schools know that there is a place that is an objective law enforcement place where we're going to be looking into whether these compliance with the duty to report has been performed because it's it's very very important it's critical where some of the gaps are in addition to something you know not getting to the right place is that sometimes people think you report to the child abuse hotline everything is taken care of but the child abuse hotline has a big exception, which is if it's in what they call an affray, meaning is it kid on kid fighting? But for example, there's cases where it's domestic violence. Yes, it's kid on kid, but this is like a choking out of a girlfriend in school. This must be reported. It's domestic violence, but it gets looked at as if it's a kid on kid. Too many exceptions. Mm. So also the child abuse hotline only investigates if it's an in-home abuse, not if it's as a teacher on a student. So are they cross-reporting to police? Very, you know, very, very, uh, are they keeping track of that? So we've been working with the agencies because I want to see the gaps closed. I want to see consistency and if we find a case where the mandated reporting duty was not performed and we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, we will prosecute. Hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you, you've, you've never been very partisan. You've always been reluctant to talk about politics or to, you know, you, you were uh, notoriously anti the, the hard parts of politics, raising money and stuff like that. Do you remain a uh, proud member of the Republican Party? Is that something you still feel comfortable identifying with? And and with all that presidents have gone through lately, is that something uh, you've been rethinking at all? 
<laughs> you know, I've always conducted myself in a nonpartisan uh, way. I mean, it, it, justice has to feel like it's for everybody. And that's how I treat it. I've always been a professional. I haven't been a party person. Running for office, fortunately, my office was a nonpartisan office. And, you know, as you probably know, I won by the highest margin known in San Diego history for my race, because I think that that not just what I said, but what I did matched what I said and what I continue to do, which is a justice for all, a fair and equal justice for all through prevention, protection, prosecution that's balanced, that gives second chances, but also looks and to protect the community from violent criminals. And so I think that's the message. That's why Democrats voted for me, nonpartisan people voted for me, and Republicans voted for me. I continue to be this way, but since I always answer truthfully, you know, I think a lot about something I've never thought about before, which is... You know, I never thought that having a party, which is how I grew up, and that's the, but I always voted my conscience and based on issues and based on people. But now being the head of the office, of a nonpartisan office, being the head of that office, I want to make sure every person out there knows that I'm their people's prosecutor and that, and if having a party, makes one person out there feel that they can't get a fair justice, that worries me. And I actually think a lot about it. And I think, do I have a responsibility as the head of the office to not have a party so that it can really accurately represent this fair and equal justice for all, a place where victims can feel comfortable and offenders that their justice will be completely without consideration for party. That's what I am doing. That's what my team that's composed of all parties does. But is that, you know, is that the perception? And so I, I talked to a lot of people about it. I've been taking feedback to see at the end of the day, whatever decision I make will be based on what I think is 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 best in representing me as 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 the people's prosecutor the DA for everyone Summer Stefan Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast the most popular political affairs podcast recorded in downtown San Diego at least this area of downtown you can keep up with everything happening at Voice of San Diego with our newsletters. Follow all of them at voiceofsandiego.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief at Voice. Andrew Keats is Assistant Editor. Sarah Libby's Managing Editor. And this show is made possible by the producer talents of Nate John, Adriana Heldes, and Megan Wood. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>